Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today on the day of a state funeral for Guy Lafleur in Montreal, we look back at his legacy both on and off the ice. We head to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology to ask a scientist who's done research on why Oreos never come apart evenly to find out what she's learned. If inflation is driving up the price of most things, why is the cost of cannabis continuing to fall? The leak of a draft U.S. Supreme Court ruling shows a majority of justices would support overturning the landmark 1973 ruling that legalized abortion in America. We look at the impact on both sides of the border. But first, it's election time in Ontario. Canada's most populous province will go to the polls on June 2nd. We get a preview of the campaign, which begins on Wednesday, and look at the key issues that could determine who wins. But we begin tonight with some serious stuff in Ontario. It's election time. It officially begins tomorrow. Voters will decide on whether or not Premier Doug Ford and the Progressive Conservatives can win again four years after ending 15 years of Liberal rule in that province. The Lieutenant Governor dissolved the legislature Tuesday afternoon following a request from Ford formally clearing away, clearing the way rather for that June 2nd vote. Here's Doug Ford just before he went in to see the Lieutenant Governor earlier today. Well, we're, we're off to the Lieutenant Governor's office and we're asking her to uh, move forward on the on the writ, and folks, you know this is going to be a pretty clear uh, choice. We're either going to go backwards like the previous government did, or we're going to move forward. We're going to start building infrastructure. We're going to continue building roads and highways and bridges. We're going to create great jobs for the people of Ontario, folks. June the second, we'll have a choice, and we're going to make sure this province continues to prosper. Backwards and forwards. Keep that in mind. It's going to come up a lot when you listen to Doug Ford over the next few weeks. Uh, There's uh, Ontario Premier Doug Ford. So big stories, affordability, of course, Ontario's response to the pandemic and the economic recovery. Uh, The leader of the NDP, the Ontario NDP, says her party is the best bet to unseat Doug Ford's progressive conservatives. Andrea Horvath says her party is entering the campaign with more seats than the Liberals or incumbent seats and plans to address challenges like housing affordability and understaffing in health care. Job number one is to defeat Doug Ford. Defeat Doug Ford and then start to fix the things that are broken, that have been broken for a long time. And so that's why our plan does exactly that. That's Andrea Horvath, the NDP leader. They go in as the official opposition, 38 seats for them at dissolution, 67 for the Tories, seven for the Liberals. Meanwhile, concerns about a healthcare system in nursing homes during the coronavirus staff burnout, that'll be a lot of talk about that. Uh, Climate change hasn't been talked about much. It's expected to be a bit of a hot topic. The Ontario Liberals are promising to cut greenhouse gas emissions by strengthening standards for industry, providing electric vehicle rebates, providing grants for eco-friendly renovations. Um, And Stephen DeLuca, the Liberal leader, also says has promised one dollar per ride across the province transit fares here he is talking about uh, what he thinks is wrong with what the progressive conservatives have done on climate over the past four years when it comes to protecting and strengthening our environment in this province when it comes to doing our part to confront the climate crisis the ford conservatives are determined to only go backwards we can't afford that in this province Backwards, forwards, keep that in mind. Stephen DeLuca, the Liberal Party leader. Well, joining me now is someone who knows this stuff inside out. It's always exciting when there's an election on tap. Alan Carter, of course, is Global News anchor in Ontario at 5.30 and 6, host of Focus Ontario and the Alan Carter Show, and someone who I used to occasionally replace 
on the Global Morning Show many, many moons ago. Alan, thank you so much for being here tonight. <laughs> oh, it's great to be with you, Ben. So this is, I mean, this is seems like it's going to be an exciting race. For an outsider, it looks like Doug Ford goes in with a commanding lead. Is that is that right? Yeah, he does. I mean, the polling <clears throat> suggests that the uh, Conservatives are five or six points, depending on what you're looking at, uh, out in front. And, of course, they have incumbency as well. And also they have in Doug Ford a, a terrific retail politician. I mean, say... Uh, w- no matter where you are on the political spectrum, whatever you want to say about his politics, uh, he connects with crowds. He is a um, great campaigner, and we have seen him in 2018 really be uh, disciplined and stick to script and not really say much of anything <laughs> at all. It worked for him fine in 2018. Uh, we'll see whether it works again. We can only hope that he doesn't stick to script as journalists, of course. You always want them to wander <laughs> off that script. Yes. Um, as, as, as he, I mean, if you look back at the pandemic, obviously there were mistakes made and so on. But again, a listening to, I was looking at an abacus poll recently. A lot of people in Ontario seem pretty happy with, with the work that he's done. You know, he, uh, like a lot of uh, incumbent politicians in this country, you know, benefited from the early days of the pandemic, the constant uh, uh, media exposure. Uh, there there has been a lot of criticism about some of his handling. Uh, but in the later stages of the pandemic, when the, the country perhaps, you know, was looking at what is happening in Alberta, Ontario was continuing to be pretty much middle of the road. And Doug Ford, in the latter half of the pandemic, I think, is, has, to a lot of Ontarians' minds, struck the right kind of chord in between caution and uh, reopening and actually lifting restrictions. I mean, it's been controversial, the lifting of the mask mandates. Not everybody agrees with it, um, but it has not been, it certainly doesn't seem to have hurt him politically. What are the key issues you're going to be looking for? I mean, I mentioned some of them off the top, but those are pretty straightforward things. But uh, what are some of the subtleties around affordability that you'll be looking for uh, from, from Doug Ford specifically in this campaign? Well, this will be interesting because I, I think affordability is such a big part of it. And, uh, you know, the Ford conservatives have already put uh, much of what they're promising on the table. They introduced a, a budget uh, and then they, they haven't voted on it. They haven't passed it. So they're basically campaigning on it. It is their campaign document. And some of the things that they are promising is like a, a reduction in gas tax. Of course, it only is temporary. It only comes into play after the election. So, you know, <laughs> they just sign up here for your discount. Um, and, and what the government has also done is things like they have rebated uh, the stickers that the, you put on your uh, on your license plate, you'd have to pay an right. annual fee for that before they have actually, I, I still have it in my briefcase, my <laughs> $400 rebate check from the government for, uh, for the last two years of, or I think, yeah, two years of vehicle registration. And some people criticize that as, you know, actually, you know, using our own money to buy votes, but it, that's the sort of attack that the government is taking on affordability. The liberals have a different take. You mentioned the $1, um, the transit thing, that's a promise that the uh, Liberals have done, uh, whereas uh, the NDP are taking a different tact on, on affordability. But that is the central issue, I think. Where do you think Doug Ford could be vulnerable here? Uh, I think a pandemic surprise would be uh, a vulnerability. I think um, an undisciplined uh, premier um, who we 
certainly saw in the early part of his tenure after his election, he was very disciplined throughout uh, the last campaign, as I mentioned, in 2018. But then once into power, just kind of you know shot from the lip a lot uh, and found himself in a lot of trouble in the early going. And you know what the weird thing is? I think that the turning point for him was the Raptors parade. The Raptors parade went through the Raptors won in 2019 at a huge parade. Right. And uh, there's a you know big thing at Nathan Phillips Square. They called, they introduced the prime minister, and there's huge huge uh, cheers. They introduced Doug Ford, and he gets booed. He gets booed. And I and shortly after that, there was a cabinet shuffle and everything. And I think that's a sort of a, the, Doug Ford is not an ideologue. He is a guy that really uh, basks in uh, applause. He likes to be liked. Uh, and I think if he, he strays off that, um, you know, in his appeal to the, you know, the middle of uh, the road voter, I think he could be in trouble. Imagine if the Leafs go on a playoff run and he gets to bask <laughs> in that too. Can you imagine that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> when we get, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, I want to ask you a bit more about, you know, the NDP, the Liberals, I mean, they're, you know, can they unite? Are they going to try and anybody but Ford? We'll talk about that after this. I'm speaking with Alan Carter, the uh, 5.30 and 6 p.m. anchor at Global Ontario, host of Focus Ontario and the Alan Carter Show, of course. We're talking about the uh, Ontario election, which will officially begin tomorrow. Doug Ford in the lead heading in. Um, the Liberals did disastrously in 2018, Alan. Are, is there any chance for them to come back this time? Or are the NDP and the Liberals really going to fight over what's what, you know, fight over that vote, essentially? Well, that, that's interesting. You know, Andrew Horvath was asked today, you know, like, you know, what are you in this for? And, you know, like, what, I'm, I'm here to unseat Doug Ford. She's trying to present herself as the replacement to uh, the PCs, whereas the liberals, I mean, yeah, they, they suffered a disaster in 2018. But historically, they've been quite strong, obviously, in power for 15 years. I think if you if you look at the polls, it probably suggests that they would return to uh, opposition, and, and I think that that might be seen as a as a win. Uh, it, I think it's going to really come down to, you know, if you are committed to saying I don't want any more progressive conservative rule in the province of Ontario, where's your vote going to go? And I think that's still up in the air for a big chunk of the electorate. It should be interesting to see. Obviously, the Liberals hoping to uh, to to regain some of that that well, obviously, would become the official opposition again. Um, what do you think the opposition parties here, whether it be the Green Party or the Liberals or the NDP, need to do to gain traction in this in this election? Not have it become because I remember the last time it was kind of the Doug Ford election, no matter what, even though he went in not as the not as in the front. Yeah, I mean, people often forget that Andrew Horvath actually led her in the early going in 2018 uh, before the province, you know, took a closer look at some of their candidates and then decided, no, Doug Ford was the way to go. Um, it, I, I think the best case scenario for um, both either the Liberals or the NDP or, or you know, Mike Schreiner, uh, uh, the Greens, we have a green uh, seat in Ontario that they, they catch some kind of something in the public imagination and that somebody can get behind them. Because it really, there doesn't seem to be, you know, we often struggle at the outset of these campaigns to say, what is the ballot question? And I don't think at this point we can definitively say, sometimes in the middle of campaigns, as you well know, I mean, something just comes up and it becomes the ballot question. You don't see it in the early going. Well, I don't know whether it is clear right now beyond 
do you want more Doug Ford? And I, I think that maybe if that is the only ballot question, that plays in the conservatives' favor. A couple of debates in this uh, in this campaign. I know those, I guess, will be important specifically for, for Del Duca, would it be? Is he the, sort of the unknown here? I mean, he was a cabinet minister and so forth, but... Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think it'll be important for uh, Horvath to try and present herself as premier-like. Um, remember, this is her fir- fourth kick at the can here. Um, so the province knows her. Um, they've taken a pass be- three times before, so somehow, somehow she's going to have to elevate her game. Uh, for Del Duca, yes, I think it's going to be absolutely vital that he not only introduces himself but still uh, shrugs off the constant attacks of, you know, you guys were in power for 15 years. You personally were at the cabinet table during, you know, the last couple of years of very unpopular liberal government. And how is he how is he going to be able to uh, deftly uh, parry aside those attacks? I, I mean, they've started already. They've been around for a while. I mean, every time there's any question, it's like, well, I mean, you even played it at the beginning of your program today. You know, yeah. what did Doug Ford say today when he went to see the left Indian governor? He he said, you know, we're going to move forward, not like the previous government. I mean, he's been in power for four years. He's still railing on about the liberal. I know. Well, the BCNDP out here have been in power for more than four years now still talk about the 16 years that the liberals were in power. It's, yes. it's the gift that never stops giving in it politics, just, right? Does, exactly. Yeah. You bet. <laughs> Um, what kind of, I did notice that, uh, that Premier Ford happened to be hanging out with a certain liberal prime minister the other, this week on a big announcement. He seems to have played that relationship quite well. Yeah. You know, it, it, long gone are the days when, you know, uh, Ford was a kind of a, a, a whipping, uh, post for the prime minister and then both taking shots back and forth. I mean, even during the pandemic, remember the, the conservatives in this in province ran very, uh, anti-liberal, ads about porous borders showing, you know, reds pouring in through the province because of, you know, contagion coming over the border. But it's still, he's managed to, Doug Ford has managed to maintain an amicable relationship uh, in the last while. I think that both sides realize that there's nothing to be gained for either the federal liberals or the provincial conservatives um, to, you know, be at each other's throats and that probably best to keep your powder dry. So where is everyone heading out to? What is sort of the the opening salvo uh, as far as this election is concerned? Uh, what, what, what we see in the first few days? Well, I mean, what's going to be key for the Ford Conservatives, keep in mind that much of their promises, you know, build highways, infrastructure, is really trying to, you know, put roads and areas where that they are shored up, you know, where they are going to be able to continue to uh, win, which is rural Ontario and very conservative. But also, it, as federally, as you know, it's the ring really around Toronto that is the key. It's very vote-rich, the 905 is. You know, in the city itself, in the center of the city, the Conservatives aren't really going to compete in very many ridings, and that's going to be a question about where does a progressive vote go. That'll tell a tale. But in terms of forming government, you really need to carry the 905. And so you'll see a lot of that. You'll see Doug Ford out on you know, in different parts of the province, not very much time in Toronto. He talks about, I don't, I don't like being in the, in the bubble. He doesn't like being in the bubble. He's from Etobicoke, by the way. He's friends. It's not far from here. 
which okay. I remember is a four is a four one six if I remember my yes, my Toronto yes, correctly. Is, you are correct. <laughs> Not a nine oh five. Alan Carter, I look forward to your coverage. Look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, let everyone know about this election starting tomorrow. Ben, it's been so much fun. I appreciate it. <laughs> And joining me now is Pat Hickey, longtime hockey writer and columnist for the Montreal Gazette, a man who's been watching the Habs for a, a very long time. Um, what, tell me a bit about today. What was it like to, to be at this at this major event and, and just to see all the faces there? It seemed like it was a who's who of hockey that turned out today. Yes, it was. Uh, you know, there were the NHL commissioner was there. There were probably 75 former players, most of them former teammates or former Canadians. The entire current Canadians team was there. Uh, there were also some surprises. Joe Sackett, who played briefly with, uh, with Guy in the Quebec Nordiques, uh, came in. Daryl Sittler was there. Uh, so it was, it was quite, the, quite a lot of hockey royalty there. What was it like? I mean, you, you mentioned uh, that, that there were a lot of people outside. They really uh, made sure that people felt included in this event. Yeah, I think that was very important. Uh, what they did was they set up two enormous giant screens outside. And uh, so people were able to watch the ceremony, listen to it. Um, they even, you know, this was a, a Catholic mass. So uh, at one point it, when it came time for the communion, they actually sent a couple of priests outside to uh, to administer communion to the uh, to the people who were waiting outside, and um, you know it was it was very much very much uh, you know geared to the fans. Guy uh, uh, lay in state for two days at the Bell Center. Tens of thousands of people showed up over the two days, and um, you know it was one of the thing one of the things that they uh, emphasized. In talking about Guy over the years, his, his generosity and, and how he never turned down an autograph. And I think that what they wanted to do was they wanted to give the fans a chance to say goodbye and uh, to show their appreciation for for what he did, both on and off the ice. Yeah, what, what was that like? I mean, I remember, obviously, the Rocket funeral stands out for me, Rocket Richard's funeral, and what an important place he had in Quebec history. What was your sense of, of, of Guy's place today? Well, I think that I think he has a similar place to to uh, to uh, Rocket. Uh, you know, when he won the Memorial Cup with the Quebec Rampart, that was a turning point in, uh, in Quebec hockey. A Quebec team, the Montreal Canadiens, Montreal Junior Canadiens, had won it the first two years, two years before that. But this was the first time that a team from the Quebec League. Won the uh, won the title because the junior Canadians played in the old OHA, and uh, most of the top players in the in the in Quebec, most of the top junior players either went to the junior Canadians or, in some cases, like Marcel Dion, and uh, you know went went outside the province to play for OHA teams. And of course, this is all played out against the background of the Quebec Quiet Revolution and Quebec being becoming uh, more aware of itself as, as a, um, you know, as a distinct entity in Canada. So, you know, in that respect, he played a very important role. What stood out for you today, Pat, at the, uh, given how much time you spent with Guy Lafleur over the years, what stood out to you today from those who got up to speak, the fans that were there? First of all, that he was greatly loved. Uh, everybody that, that came in contact with him, um, appreciated 
uh, his grace, his skill, uh, and and his, his generosity of spirit. You know, he he was always willing to help players, just as he got help along the way. I mean, you know, at various times he talked about uh, Jean Beliveau and Yvonne Cornwallier and what they did for helping him in his career, and uh, and he passed that on to younger players. And uh, Guy Carboneau talked about that today when he first arrived and Guy helping him. And, uh, and of course, Yvonne Cornoyer helped Guy. Uh, he's the guy that uh, convinced Guy to take off his helmet. And then he became the demo and blonde uh, with the long flowing locks flying down the ice. And, uh, uh, I think there were probably, he played on a team that won four, he won five Stanley Cups, they won four in a row. And that team had seven Hall of Famers on it. And it's hard to say who was the best player in the in that group, but certainly Guy was the most exciting player. Yeah, you've said that in the past that Guy Lafleur may not have been the best hockey player of his generation, but he was certainly the most fun. To, one of the most fun to watch. Yes, he was. You know, when he got ahead of steam, and uh, in the last couple of days, we've seen a lot of the goal that he scored in the '79 playoffs. The Canadians won the brink of elimination. Against Boston, they were down 4-3. That was the famous uh, you know, too many men on the ice uh, penalty. Uh, um, and people to this day make fun of Don Cherry for not being able to count to six. And you know, you see the see him coming out of the coming out of his own end at top speed, passing the uh, passing the puck ahead to uh, Jacques Lemaire, and then he takes a return pass and he just unloads with a one timer. And uh, that's the sort of goals that, that Guy scored. I mean, there are some players that uh, that score goals by being gritty and being, you know, around the net, uh, taking advantage of rebounds and things like that. But but Guy scores. These goals were mostly goal scorers' goals, great shots, and uh, and and usually, you know, off the rush. Uh, there were very few players who were as creative as he was. Steve Shutt once said that. Uh, you know, you never knew, never knew what Guy was going to do because Guy didn't know what he was going to do. I'm speaking with Pat Hickey, longtime hockey writer and columnist for the Montreal Gazette about the uh, funeral today, the state funeral for Guy Lafleur in Montreal after two days of uh, visitation that was held at the Bell Center so fans could really get involved. Uh, after this, we'll talk a bit more about, about Guy's legacy and, 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 and just a bit more about, about the impression he left because he had some tough times with the Canadians there when he retired uh, and then came back to hockey. And there were some years there where he wasn't really part of the Canadians organization. We'll talk about that after this. I'm speaking with Pat Hickey, longtime hockey writer, columnist for the Montreal Gazette about Guy Lafleur's funeral today. Um, and all those who turned out, Maple Leafs were there. There was lots of former Canadians, current Canadians that were there. Larry Robinson spoke about losing both Mike Bossy and Guy Lafleur in, in, in short succession. Uh, I guess for, for someone watching the game now, it is, it is odd to see that generation now. Um, starting to pass away, that 70s generation, that early 80s generation of players, of stars. I mean, it is sad. I mean, I said the problem is, you know, like, you know, at, at some point, everybody's going to go. And, uh, you know, in Guy's case, it was probably, um, you know, a bit premature. He's only 70 years old, which is, it's not young, but it's not old either. And uh, my Beliveau was 83 when he died. Um, and, so it was, you know, it, it's it's sad. Um, I know that in the case of, you know, for example, Yvonne Conway, who's a little older, 
And, um, you know, he's seen a lot of the players that he started out with. And, uh, you know, when he was playing for Toe Blake, a lot of those players are gone now. Uh, we lost on Henry Richard um, uh, last year, and uh, and that was that was kind of sad. That, that he probably would have had a big funeral too, except that uh, he happened to die during the the COVID pandemic and all the restrictions. And uh, but he was certainly in the in the same class with these players. Pat Gilafleur had a bit of a of a complex. I mean, I guess so did Rocket Richard, but he had a bit of a complex relationship with with the game and with the Canadian organization for a while. There was that. Was that how how did that play out? And was that all healed? Yeah, I think I think it was healed at the end. You know, certainly for the last uh, fifteen twenty years, he's worked as an ambassador. Uh, there there are some times when. Uh, that didn't work out quite the way the Canadians expected it to be because he was incredibly honest. There was no filter. If he, uh, you asked him a question, he would answer it quite, uh, quite honestly. Uh, there was a famous comment uh, years back when he was asked about the the makeup of the team, and he said they don't have a first line, a second line, or a third line. They have four fourth lines, and. Uh, you know that that didn't go over well. I don't think with the management, and I think some of the players might have been a little miffed uh, when he said that. But um, at one time, he suggested they get rid of uh, Brendan Gallagher and Max Pacioretty. Said they'd never win with them, and these were two of the more popular players on the team. Uh, uh, but they say he just you know if you asked him a question, he would he would answer it honestly, and. Uh, he was uh, he was quite involved in a lot of community projects. Uh, if the Canadians needed uh, needed some help on a project, he was always there to to uh, help out. He was involved in a very strange. Uh, every year he handed out the Gila Flirt Awards, and these were for hockey players in the, at the junior level and the university level uh, who achieved academic excellence as well as being uh, you know good players on the ice. And he always thought that was a little ironic. I think his own education ended at grade ten, and um, you know he would he would very self-deprecating, um, you know, point out the fact that uh, it was very strange that he would be handing out these awards for academic excellence. Pat, you you saw him over many 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 years. What are your memories? What are your best memories, or what are your most uh, significant memories of Gilafleur? Well, you know, my, my memory, uh, I first saw him play for the Quebec Run Park, and um, he got 130 goals that year. Uh, I know he first came on the radar when he played in the Quebec Wee Tournament. I, I don't remember that, but uh, uh, he won the MVP award there three years in a row, which was unheard of, and especially coming from this small town, uh, in Quebec, which probably nobody had ever heard of Thurso before he uh, he arrived on the scene and started playing hockey. Um, I saw him play a couple of times in the Rempar, including a, some uh, games in the Memorial Cup, and you just knew that this guy was going to be a star. Um, he just had that charisma about him. And, um, you know, as if just going back to this whole thing, he was an exciting player. Now, the first couple of years of the Canadians, I think he was a little um, a little frustrated, I, I would say. 
because he didn't have that immediate success. He had 28, 29 goals in his first two seasons, and it wasn't until the until next year they put him with uh, uh, Steve Shutt and Frank and Peter Mahovlich, and um, you know they they suddenly took off as a line. That's when he started scoring uh, 50 goals. But was he fun to you know? Was he fun to, Was he a nice guy to, to spend time with? Was he a nice guy to interview? Was it? I mean, he was the, the star, right? Oh, he was sometimes he, stuff. He was very nice, very nice guy to interview. In the beginning, he was very shy. Um, you know, it took it took him a couple of years to to feel comfortable in that uh, in that arena. Later on, I mean, he um, I think he was one of the first players to publicly criticize Scotty Bowman. But by that time, he was uh, he was such a a dominant player on the team. Uh, you know, he was one of the guys who would get away with with doing that. You know, saying uh, you know, well, you know, the coach works us too hard and that sort of thing. And uh, I remember talking to Scotty one time and and talking about the players of that era. And he pushed them really hard. And he said that his one regret was he wasn't able to tell those guys how great they were. And, of course, he had seven Hall of Famers uh, during that uh, eight- or nine-year run that he was uh, he was the coach. And, and Bill Fuller was certainly, you know, one of the top players. Do you think um... – do you think Guy would be would be good today? Do you think he had the kind of skills that were timeless? Oh, I think he I think he'd be good today. I think you know one of the things is um, you know he would benefit from uh, the equipment, for example, changing. Um, he would probably benefit a little bit from the uh, uh, from the makeup of the teams. Um, I was talking to one former player, you know, saying that. In those days, you you had guys like you know Bossy and, and Lafleur. They had to be good because they had they had guys hunting for them all the time, and they had to use their speed. And of course, Bossy, you know, his career ended because he just of the constant pounding that he took in his back. And uh, no, I think he would have been great. He would have been great with uh, with composite sticks. Uh, he played uh, with a wood stick and. Uh, you know, you can certainly get a lot more whip with the uh, with the new sticks and new equipment that's out there. Um, and I think he would have benefited from the rules, which which allow players with skill to to have a little more room, a little more um, chance to to do things. A last thought on Guy for uh, for listeners as we say goodbye to him. Well, I, I think he'll be missed. Uh, you know, he was always fun to be around. Um, you know, he was always uh, willing to to give you time and then to talk to you. And you know, for someone in my business, uh, you know, that's that's always uh, it's always good. Um, today, players um, you know have a lot of media training where basically they're told not to say anything. And uh, you know, Guy was he was refreshing. He was always uh, he was always full of life. And that's when it's always tough, you know, when you see somebody who is full of life and it suddenly is gone. Gary, it's time I taught you something every man should know. How to eat an Oreo cookie. Here's yours. Twist it off. Oh, you did it. Just give it a lick. <laughs> now let's dunk it, just like a professional basketball player. Mmm. <laughs> Now you just learn to tie your shoelaces and you'll be all set. Only Oreo. 
Mr. Christie, nobody bakes it better. There you go. A little blast from the past. An Oreos cookie from the 1990s. A father and son thing. Teaching son how to twist an Oreo. Uh, maybe we'll change the commercial. These days we could have a mom and daughter doing the same thing. Or both. But uh, twisting was important. Dunking was important. They've been around for more than a century, but the Oreo has managed to retain a certain amount of mystery. For example, why do they never come apart evenly when you try, when you twist? Um, different Oreo eaters obviously prefer different methods of Oreo eating. We've been uh, talking about this all night. Some dunk them in chocolate, put bacon in them. Some dunk them in may uh, mayonnaise. Don't try that. Uh, molasses, rather. Peanut butter. All kinds of different options. We've heard lots of interesting ones tonight. Um, but one of the big ones is obviously to twist them apart. And that action produces two separate chocolate wafers. But as we've all known, the cream filling usually only sticks to one side or most of it sticks to one side. It seems there really is no technique, no matter how advanced, maybe you have one out there, that could actually split the contents of an Oreo close to evenly. And only recently have a team of researchers at the Massachusetts of Institute of Technology, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, no less, sought an explanation. So we figured... We need to know more about this. So joining me from Cambridge, Massachusetts, is Crystal Owens, a PhD candidate in the Department of Mechanical Engineering at MIT and who worked on solving the Oreo mystery. She is an Oreoologist or a preeminent cookie scientist. Crystal Owens, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, I mean, the obvious question is what prompted the research into into these mysteries that let's be honest these are very this this is popular work people care about this stuff yeah so the research started from a very uh, personal interest in desserts essentially so I'm, I'm very picky about my desserts and when i was growing up i remember eating oreos and trying to twist them open so that i would have like a little bit of cream and a little bit of cookie in every bite with the cream on the surface because that's how it tastes best to me Right. And I remember kind of struggling to make this happen. Um, and then I just kind of like forgot about it. I moved on to other things. When I came to MIT, now I've um, started my PhD in studying rheology, which is the study of complex fluids. And so my main PhD research is studying the flow of conductive materials. So this is for like 3D printing of electronics. But it turns out the machine that we use to study these materials, it has two counter-rotating plates so like two little disks that spin one beside another. And this, like one day I looked at that and I said, wow, this machine that I use to study my 3D printing fluids is exactly the same. It's an exact analogy to an Oreo cookie. I wonder if I can use this to solve the question that I um, never figured out as a kid. Is it, it's the Oreo's parallel plate rheology. Did I read that right? Is that? Uh... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so you went out to figure out why it is that when you break apart an Oreo, most of the icing always stays on one side. So how did you do that? Yeah. So luckily we had this machine in our lab that we could stick our cookies to, and then we could do a perfect twisting motion. Because the idea, the idea that I had, the hypothesis, was that if you give a perfect twist to the cookie, maybe you can split the cream exactly in the middle. And like this it might is be a sweet spot, a sweet spot in the way you do it. Wow. Okay. Exactly, a sweet yeah. spot. If you if you can do something that's like perfectly twisting, maybe no sort of peeling or other motions. Um, 
because there are some polymer solutions that do this. It's like something called an edge factor that's like fairly common in like complex rheology. Right. But it turns out that even with the most perfect twist, we would get the cream all on one side, which was um, kind of intriguing to us. And it, it's kind of like what we found is that the cream sticks better to itself than it does to the cookies. And so under the most controlled circumstances, you get a very clean break of the cream. This doesn't happen for all the cookies in the box. It's only about 80% um, because there's like a little bit of randomness. The, the manufacturing of the cookies is not like perfectly controlled, but, but for the most part, it happens every time. And I understand that this, it didn't matter what kind of Oreo you were trying out. It didn't matter if it was double stuff or regular or thin or either way, it, it always worked out this, you had the same results. And we really got into this. We spent a lot of time and we went through about 38 boxes of cookies trying to test all the different properties because we tested exactly different flavors, different levels of cream. And the important one was testing different rotation rates and like different, different sorts of twisting. So you're really looking again for that, for that, it was there a way that to twist it either fast or slow or to see if there was one way that could possibly defeat uh, this trend? Yeah, and actually we did find one other possible opening. Uh, because we had this machine, it can twist 100 times faster than a human can twist. <laughs> and so we found under like the fastest twisting, we could actually launch the cream. <laughs> That's, uh, which I guess is defeats the, the whole purpose, right? Um, yeah, so, so it is that the cream would always stay attached to either one or to zero of the wafers. Right. So if you go out really fast, the cream just, just jets out and that's, then you're left with two chocolate wafers, which would be, uh, which I suppose would be the, w- wouldn't be the purpose. So you had some theories on to, as to why this is, and you just mentioned it, I think. Um, but there is a reason you think that the icing always sticks to one side. Right. And so one of the one of the cool things about this is that the icing sticks to one of the wafers rather than the other. And it always has like the same direction in the box. And so this like it, it's something that we have hypothesized that we've seen some videos of the manufacturing of Oreos that the cream sticks best to the cookie that it was first attached to. And so there's a higher adhesion on one side and a lower adhesion uh, of the cream to the cookie that was or to the wafer that was put on second. I'm going to try this now. I have a box of Oreos in front of me because I, I, you know, oddly enough, I'm one of those people who eats the whole cookie. That was always, I just liked it all at once. And I think I actually preferred the wafers to the cream, which is, you know, I think everyone has their own way of liking an Oreo, but you're right. Every time I do it, the most of the icing, actually this one, some of the icing, enough of the icing stuck to the other wafer that it would actually be a nice wafer biscuit ratio sort of and and you think there are exceptions you said that only about 80 percent of the cookies in any given box um sort of abide by the general rule but then it's a little bit tricky if you want to say like what do you count as dividing between wafers because you can get it so the cream like rips and you get like a half moon on both sides but what we actually want is to get a thin layer on both cookies so it's like evenly coated and that's a lot harder to do I, I've just opened three and I would say that it's impossible to do so far because it's, you're right. It's, it's sort of giving me uneven amounts of icing on either side. I'm not getting a nice, uh, I'm not getting a nice, uh, a nice portion. I'm not getting an even thinned out portion on each side, as you had mentioned. Um, so, so were you, were you satisfied with the results as a scientist and as an Oreo lover, as a cookie lover, were you, were you surprised at all by what you found? I mean, I was very disappointed because I expected to find like a special trick, 
but I was satisfied that I could finally put this question through best. What's been the reaction to it? Because people are fascinated by these sorts of questions. And especially when you sort of put something as interesting as the Oreo meter, as I guess it became known, that double, that machine you were using. Um, what kind of reaction have you had to it? Right. So I guess I didn't expect anywhere near the reaction that I've gotten. Because this was, this was very much a personal question. But I guess it's kind of like what teachers say in the classroom. It's like, you should ask the question that you're thinking of because maybe other people have the same question. And I found that this this uh, whole paper has really resonated with a lot of people. Um, like like both the fact that we just like really got into a very silly question and like the idea of like this is this is like very much curiosity driven research. And we found that this puzzle of like science hidden in plain sight that people are like very interested in. Just in terms of of, of your broader work, the fact that these these cookies will not give you, I'm going to do this again, because yeah, no, again, <laughs> this one was mostly icing on one, very little on the other. Um, what does it say? I mean, what is the broader lesson learned here from um, in terms of just what you discovered? Because there is science behind this, right? If you can forgive my ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And actually, that was the kind of test that we did on the, the Oreo cream is exactly the same test we do on any sort of fluid that we're trying to design for like one of many reasons. And so like the measuring of the yield stress of the fluid is is important for designing other kinds of fluids. Like maybe if you want to design a gluten-free Oreo, if you have those measurements, then you know how to replicate it. Or if you look at like any other soft solid, like it turns out the the sandwich model, um, like like this the the wafer, the cream, the wafer is also a very good model of the Earth's crust because we have like a hard crust and then a soft, like squishy part below that, and then another hard layer. So it's like the mechanics that we found are relevant for many other applications. The um, and this applies to just I mean there you in your paper you also look at other examples that we see in everyday eating life where we see the same phenomenon like why do certain piece parts of cereal always rise to the top of the box and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, and that's where like the field of rheology is very interested in food. I think like all of, all of us scientists like playing with our food. And it, it's fascinating to find these questions that we can that we can answer through scientific study. Did you do you still love the Oreos as much? What's your Oreo? What's your go-to? So you do like to separate them that much, we know, because you went you took time to to investigate. But are you still <laughs> after your thirty-six boxes? Are you still an Oreo fan? Yes, yes. Actually, probably the way that my Oreo eating habits have changed the most is at the very end of our study, we studied. Um, the the intake of milk and how long it takes Oreos to get soggy, and ah. so that that has made it like very. Um, I mean, basically, I so, so as an engineer, I like optimizing processes, and I've optimized the timing for like how long you're supposed to dip the cookie in the milk, and then how long you have after you've dipped it until you can eat it to make sure it doesn't fall apart. And so, so that's like very satisfying to get right now. So, Crystal, you did discover a secret here, so or at least a an optimal. So, so what is optimal then? If, so if you dip your cookie in milk, in 1% milk for about five seconds, then you have about 60 seconds to eat it before it'll fall apart. So one second in the milk and 60 seconds to eat. Yeah. So five that, seconds in the milk. Oh, five seconds, then, right. Yeah. yeah. And, and but then, if you have a bare wafer, then you only have 30 seconds to eat it. Ah. So it's and, like the cream, the cream adds some structural integrity. Right. And what about in terms of, of, uh, of different, like, what if you have 2% milk or is it just, does that make a difference? It, so we didn't test that, but right. our theory would be that 2% milk would be slower. So you would have a little bit more time. 
And if you had skim milk, it would be faster. So you have to be a little bit faster at eating your cookies. Interesting. So you have, so again, if 1% milk, you got five seconds to dip and 60 seconds to eat, presumably 2%, you might have a little more time to dip and about a little more time to eat maybe. That's that's correct. So what next? Are you are you working on any any other uh, labors of love, so to speak? <laughs> we definitely have ideas that have been pouring in, uh, but that's one of the reasons we added to our study the the oreometer, which is like six dollars worth of printed plastic. It's it's a rheometer that's powered by rubber bands and pennies, so that anyone who has access to a three D printer can go and they can start adding to our field of study if maybe people want to test like the effect of staleness or the effect of milk or or other things that people have been suggesting yeah i saw i saw a video on youtube of your oreo your oreometer it's it's fascinating stuff crystal owens thank you so much for your time today that's uh you know science is always fascinating it's specifically fascinating sometimes when it deals with everyday stuff like the oreo cookie i really appreciate it yeah thank you so much for having me Looking back at the last half hour, we were talking to Ramona King. Rick in Abbotsford has an interesting uh, piece of advice. He says, a realtor friend gave me some advice years ago that my daughter lives by. Buy the worst house on the best street you can afford, then get to work and build some sweat equity. Sounds like very good advice. Um, And now his daughter is living uh, well in Salmon Arm. So congratulations to Rick. We've been talking about Oreos tonight as well. How do you eat them? Uh, We have a scientist coming up a little later in the show from MIT, no less, who's done experiments on why is it that you can't pull apart or twist apart an Oreo so you get even icing, even parts icing on each wafer. Um, She's also looked into how long you have to dunk an Oreo in milk for it to be perfect texture and then how long it remains that way until it falls apart. Uh, so we'll share those answers with you. But we've been asking, how do you eat an Oreo cookie? 877-399-9898, 877-399-9898. And we've had some interesting replies. So Derek, who is seems to be the absolute aficionado when it comes to how to make an Oreo cookie even more um, even more delectable, <laughs> says you can actually twist it apart and put bacon bits in the middle and then eat it, which sounds which sounds pretty amazing. Now, bacon's good in anything, and Oreos are great. I've been eating them all day because I had to do this interview. Um, but that sounds really good. And then apparently, Derek said, you could actually dip that in chocolate as well. So you can imagine bacon bits in the middle of your Oreo dipped in chocolate. Anyway, that's a really elaborate and quite delicious way to eat an Oreo cookie. I'm getting hungry just talking about it, so I'm going to stop now and get on to the next story. 877-399-9898. Uh, tell me where you are and who you are and how you like to eat Oreo cookies. Well, we've talked about the rising prices of just about everything on this show over the past little while. One thing that is not going up in price, it seems, is cannabis. Prices for recreational and medicinal cannabis have dropped by 8.3% and 10.2% respectively over the past year, according to StatsCan. Both have fallen by roughly 25% since the end of 2018. So what's going on and where's it headed? Joining me now is Michael Armstrong. He's an associate professor of operations research in Brock University's Goodman School of Business. Michael Armstrong, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you for inviting me. It does seem, when you notice it, it stands out right away. It does seem counterintuitive. While the price of everything else is going up, the price of cannabis is going down. Why is that? Well, uh, a simple way to think about inflation is Prices go up when there's too many dollars chasing too few product. So uh, the sellers raise the prices. 
uh, and consumers compete for those products. But in the case of cannabis, we have the opposite situation. We have too much product, too many producers chasing too few consumers, and so they lower the price to compete for those consumers. How did this, I mean, race to the bottom sounds awfully, awfully dire, but how did this, how did we end up here just a few years after legalization? Well, this is going on at basically two levels. So it started at the producer level. So thinking back to the first year of legalization, there was lots of talk about product shortages. And for the first six months, we didn't, there was not enough product finished cannabis coming out of the producers to keep up with demand. But once they got the hang of running those big greenhouses and getting product shipped and processed by the summer of 2019, we were into a surplus situation. And uh, there was more cannabis around than could be sold. So that's when producers started cutting their prices and also started closing down some of their surplus greenhouses. So that's been going on for some time. More recently, in some provinces, uh, as the retail networks have gotten bigger, uh, like they have uh, in British Columbia, Alberta was the leader on this, but now Ontario is also catching up. Um, so now we have the retailers also competing with each other. So initially, the first couple of stores basically had the local market themselves. Uh, but now some parts of Toronto, there's you know several stores in with a couple of blocks of each other. Uh, some other parts of the country similarly have are a bit saturated. So now those retailers are, are competing more directly. And so the stores are lowering their prices as well. So we've got this going on at two levels, uh, the producers for some time and the retailers more recently. How about for investors? Because there was a lot of appetite, it Mm -hmm. seemed early on. This seemed like a very good thing. And right now, I guess it's going through the inevitable growing pains. Yeah, it's kind of a boom and bust uh, cycle. There was lots of enthusiasm. Uh, Some some of that was just, uh, you know, optimistic. Uh, You know, if you're an entrepreneur, you're starting a business, you're making an educated bet. How big do you think the market will be? And how big of that, a slice of that market do you think you can get? Uh, and then over time, uh, reality sets in, you find, okay, this is the size of the market we actually have. Uh, this is how many people I have to compete for. So this is what I've got. Uh, now, probably there were some of those producers that were unrealistically optimistic. There were, uh, you know, we just had too many greenhouses being built or converted, uh, too many people gain into the game. Uh, but that's been gradually downsizing. Uh, I think we're getting close to having a match on supply and demand, but that remains to be seen. How has the demand been um, compared to what might have been anticipated three years ago heading into all this? Uh, well, it depends who was, who was doing the anticipation. <laughs> yeah. uh, there are some politicians and some industry executives who uh, seem to think, well, you just open a store, you can charge you know, $10 a gram and up and, and people will flock to your stores. But you know, realistically, there was an established industry called the black market. Uh, they already were making product uh, that consumers seem to like at prices they seem to like. So the legal industry has to compete for those uh, customers. Now, we have definitely made progress. Uh, it's difficult to tell how big the illegal market is because, of course, they don't respond to government surveys. But uh, it's pretty confident that more than half of cannabis being consumed in Canada is now obtained legally. Some provinces more than that, depending on how big their store networks are. So definitely progress, but no, you, you have to earn those customers. That's still a pretty remarkable number considering it was all illegal up, well, mostly illegal up until uh, up until recently. And now if you have half your customers buying it uh, through legal means, it's, it seems, seems like at least it's competitive. Uh, can it stay that way? Uh, yeah, I think, I think we will continue to see progress on that. Uh, I mean, when the first stores opened that first year, the people who were buying were 
basically people who, who really wanted to buy legally. So, you know, no matter that the quality was a bit low, no matter if the price was too high, for them, it was worth it. In the last couple of years, it's been more going after kind of the average consumer. Uh, so now we've got the prices, maybe not as low as the black market, but more competitive. We've got quality, particularly from the, some of the smaller producers, uh, apparently are doing a nice job in getting the aromas and potencies right. Uh, so I think we're doing a better job of getting kind of the average cannabis consumer. But the you know the last third or last quarter, whatever it might be of the market, is going to be tough because you know there's some people just want the absolute cheapest, or they they want something that's not legally available in terms of uh, really high potency or some particular product format. Those are going to be the hardest ones to convert. So we're never going to see the uh, illegal market completely disappear. But I think uh, I think we can still make some progress on that. What about for the for the industry itself? Because I notice I'm in Victoria. If you see a really nice new store opening, chances are it's a pot shop. I mean, that's just <laughs> the way it's been. Like the nicest looking places are are the marijuana stores. But you're wondering, okay, that's a lot of overhead. That's a lot of expense up front. Um, you would imagine there must be some kind of consolidation coming pretty soon. You would think. Yes, uh, and and to some extent that's already started happening. Uh, Alberta, you're starting to see some of the. Uh, chains buying up uh, smaller stores. Uh, people got in the market and realized, okay, you know, this isn't going to be a big money maker, not as big a money maker as I wanted. Uh, and they're selling it up to chains. Uh, I expect we'll see some of that in Ontario now, although that's that's going to be limited by the particular province. So, for example, British Columbia, I believe, uh, there's a limit no more than eight stores per chain. Uh, here in Ontario, it's 75. Uh, so that will put a, a kind of cap on that. Uh, definitely consolidation. I, I'm not sure we'll see a lot of closures actually completely eliminated. Although there, you know, if you've got you know half a dozen stores all in the same neighborhood, yeah, some of those are probably not going to survive. But maybe some of them will move out to the suburbs or secondary outlets uh, and keep going that way. So when you look ahead to the next year or so, next few years, where do you see the retail cannabis industry headed? Uh, well, I think we're going to see some more consolidation on the production side. Uh, the producers are probably going to grow larger, particularly the ones that are going after what you might call the value segment, uh, low price, decent quality. Uh, I think we'll see continued growth of the smaller producers. Uh, they're calling the craft people who are going more of a high quality, uh, moderate price. Uh, Store-wise, uh, I think most provinces now have a a pretty good store network. I don't think we'll see a lot of growth, except uh, here in Ontario, we've got 1,500 uh, stores open, but we've got another 500 <laughs> applications in process. So we're probably going to top around 2,000. Uh, Quebec is the one province, I think, that still needs more stores. They'll never have as many as others because they're, they're a, a government-owned uh, retail, but they're kind of going a slow and steady expansion. So I think, I think they'll ex- be adding more stores for quite a while, but most of the rest of the province, I think, you know, by the end of this year, that's we're probably going to be pretty close to our limit. Michael Armstrong, thank you so much for your time tonight. My pleasure. After never a never before seen leak of a draft U.S. Supreme Court decision that would overturn the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade court decision that legalized abortion in America, it prompted protests in front of the Supreme Court last night. Abortion is healthcare. Abortion is healthcare. Abortion is healthcare. 
Well, the court today confirmed that the draft decision obtained by the news outlet Politico was indeed authentic, but does not represent the court's final decision due in the early summer. President Joe Biden says that a whole range of rights are now in jeopardy if Roe versus Wade is indeed overturned. The Democrats today focused on the potential impacts of the decision, while the Republicans tried to focus on the leak of the draft decision itself. Here is Democrat Senator Elizabeth Warren and Republican Ted Cruz. They have been out there plotting, carefully cultivating these Supreme Court justices so they could have a majority on the bench who would accomplish something that the majority of Americans do not want. 69% of people across this country, across this country, red states and blue states. I have to say it is utterly stunning uh, that anyone at the court would leak a draft opinion. Uh, in over 200 years of our nation's history, this has never happened. And I'm appalled. That was Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren and Ted Cruz speaking there. The repercussions being felt here in Canada today as well. Well, joining me now from Montreal with more on this is Kelly Gordon, Assistant Professor of Political Science at McGill University and co-author of The Changing Voice of the Anti-Abortion Movement, The Rise of Pro-Women Rhetoric in Canada and the United States. Uh, Kelly Gordon, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. I, I guess the obvious place to start is your reaction to the Politico story. I, I saw it late yesterday and, and thought, wow, I've never seen something mm-hmm. like this before. Yeah, I mean, I think one part of it was really surprising that a draft of a decision got leaked. Uh, the Supreme Court is known for a secrecy. So that, I think, is a really surprising element. I think less surprising, um, given the new composition of the Supreme Court, is probably the decision itself or the draft decision itself. We know that it could change um, in the next couple of months. What exactly did the decision say? And in what sense was it not surprising to see Justice Alito uh, voice what he voiced in that draft? So, I mean, I think what's not surprising if we look at this, if we take kind of a bird's eye view of it, is that abortion rights have been under attack basically since the Roe v. Wade decision in the 1970s. Um, So this is sort of a continuation of the movement, the anti-abortion movement that is gaining ground politically and legally. Um, So really, since the Roe v. Wade decision, we've seen the tenets of that decision be chipped away. Uh, So in 1992, we have the Casey decision, which really dilutes the Roe v. Wade decision. And what we've seen is that states, individual states themselves, have been very effective at passing laws that actually, you know, um, go after concrete access to abortion care. Um, So I think this is kind of um, the the culmination of decades of work on the part of the anti-abortion movement and anti-abortion legislatures. And then kind of more short term, it's not surprising um, because we knew with the two uh, new Supreme Court justices that were appointed by Trump that that would kind of change the balance of power in the Supreme Court. For listeners to understand, this is, in fact, a ruling on one of those states, Mississippi, in this case, that it passed a new law that was then challenged. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Uh, where, what, does, what happens now? So this was just a draft decision. Um, we know that within the court that these draft decisions are often then debated upon. But surprisingly, I, I suppose somewhat surprisingly, the court today said, in fact, this is indeed a legitimate mm-hmm. document because there was some speculation yesterday that we didn't know whether this was true, whether it was actually uh, a legitimate leak or not. I mean, what happens now is that, you know, everything sort of stays the same until the real decision is released, which I think will be sort of at the end of June or maybe even the end of July. 
Um, and then, so, so I mean, the thing about this decision being overturned is that it's going to affect different states differently. So it basically is empowering states to either ban abortion or to continue supporting abortion care. So in a lot of states, more liberal states where um, abortion care is legal and hasn't been under attack, nothing will change. Um, but in a lot of states where, you know, Republican states, uh, where they already have been very effective at passing laws that have shut down clinics, I mean, abortion access is going uh, look. The reality is uh, women always have abortions, whether it's legal or not. So abortion care will continue. Um, but there's going to be certain segments of women that aren't going to be able to access care. Um, and, and we know uh, that, you know, poor women, women of color, these are the women that are going to be most affected um, in states where where now abortion will be prohibited. And, and I mean, oh, sorry, to continue on that, there's, there's already a lot of states that have laws in place that sort of as soon as Roe v. Wade is overturned, a new ban on abortion will, will come into place. So, I mean, it can happen very, very quickly once the formal decision is released. How much momentum, how much of a victory would this be for those groups that have fought for, as you pointed out, the better part of 40 years, 50 yeah, years I mean, almost now, to try and have Roe v. Wade overturned? Yeah, this is a culmination of, of decades of work. Um, I mean, another interesting thing, I think, is it shows that their kind of Trump gamble paid off. Um, so, you know, the anti-abortion movement in the U.S. and elsewhere is a multifaceted, fragmented movement. But there are certainly certain parts of the movement that were not super keen on Donald Trump. Um, but the movement, you know, so once he won the nomination, the movement kind of coalesced around him and obviously were a big part of his victory. And I think really it was like, OK, we can like hold our nose and vote for Donald Trump, even though he's been married a bunch of times, even though, you know, he is the guy that he is. Um, because, you know, there's going to be new Supreme Court justices in the next few years. And so I think this really proves that that gamble that they made with Trump paid off in the long run. And, and reversing this, you know, it's not going to happen anytime soon. Um, and so this is, a, this is a huge kind of like pseudo-permanent win for the anti-abortion movement. Within states, as you mentioned earlier, those states, it'll be then left, obviously, to the states to legislate partly on their own. So states that do already have uh, protect the woman's right to choose will be will continue to do so. But we will see certainly an erosion of any what's left of, of abortion rights in many other places. That's right. And I mean, even in liberal states, you can imagine that Republican legislatures will feel very empowered. And so, you know, even in places where abortion is accessible and legal, there could be sort of intensified debates within those states as well. I know this is, might be an unanswerable question, but why has abortion been that lightning rod for so long? And what happens if, in fact, it's overturned? That's such a good question. So, I mean, abortion is this really interesting issue that I think lies at the intersection of a lot of things um, and touches on a lot of different aspects of American politics that are important. So it has this kind of symbolic weight. So, you know, it touches on the role of religion in politics. Um, on the role of women's rights, right? So it, it kind of touches all of these different facets of American political life. And so I think it's sort of become this representative issue. Um, there, this is an old quote 
now, but there's this quote that I love. It's Sarah Palin and she's speaking to a Republican audience and she says, you know, abortion is a way to identify and unify Republicans. And I think that that is really what it became, um, certainly after the 1980s, when the religious right sort of took over the Republican Party. It's been this kind of lightning rod issue and, and, a, and an issue that sort of identifies, unifies Republicans and maybe to a lesser extent, Democrats as well, right? That a right to choose. Um, so I think it, it's become, I mean, not only as an issue really important, but also kind of symbolically in the culture wars, um, an issue that, that can be used as a shortcut to, to kind of other kinds of political ideas and identities. I'm speaking with Kelly Gordon, assistant professor of political science at McGill University and co-author of The Changing Voice of the Anti-Abortion Movement, The Rise of Pro-Women Rhetoric in Canada and the U.S. After this, we'll look at what kind of impact this could have here at home. It's an American decision, but clearly these sorts of issues cross many boundaries. We'll be back with that. I'm speaking with Kelly Gordon, assistant professor of political science at McGill University and co-author of The Changing Voice of the Anti-Abortion Movement, The Rise of Pro-Women Rhetoric in Canada and the United States. We're talking about the leak of a draft decision by uh, the news outlet Politico yesterday um, about a decision in the Supreme Court of uh, the United States that would ostensibly overturn Roe v. Wade, the uh, the seminal um, abortion ruling that was passed back in 1983, essentially legalizing abortion in the United States. Uh, long fought uh, by people who've opposed it and uh, long fought in the courts by people who've opposed it. And now, in fact, if this draft decision uh, stays the way it is, it would, in fact, be be overturned by a 5-4 vote, we think, sometime in the early summer. Uh, Kelly, in terms of Canada, uh, this is a different debate in Canada, um, given the 1988 Supreme Court ruling here. But what sort of impact could this have? Uh, in this country? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, So one, I think that Canadians, I mean, as Canadians, as a Canadian, I follow American news. How can you not? Um, And I think that Canadians tend to kind of import ideas that we have about American politics to the Canadian context. And I think in this context, we have to be a little bit careful about doing that. We have our own kind of distinct history of abortion politics, which is very different than the American context. Um, So, you know, if the question is, you know, could this, could the overturning of Roe v. Wade mean the criminalization of abortion in Canada? Um, Like, no, I, I, I don't think that it can. We have a really sort of different history. In what sense, just just for listeners who who may, because it's easy sometimes to conflate the two stories if you're not paying close attention to the American story and the Canadian story. What is the status of abortion law in this country? So we are this really unique kind of country that actually has no abortion law on the books. Um, so abortion for a lot of different reasons, uh, is treated as a medical uh, procedure here. Um, It's controlled by the medical community, and we have no criminal law that actually legislates abortion. So it's treated more like um, like knee surgery or heart surgery. Could it be threatened, though, if there were if there were I mean, already, I gather access is, is, is unequal, depending on where you live. Um, so, so, you know, I think that there's two different things, right? So on the one hand, there's this question of abortion rights um, and, and, and whether, you know, uh, 
there, an abortion ban could come into effect in Canada. And I mean, technically, it would actually be pretty easy for a prime minister to criminalize abortion. Um, we know that the PMO, the prime minister, has a lot of power in Canada. So if they had a majority government, they could easily, it, I mean, it's much easier than in the US where it happens state by state. Um, they could easily pass a law kind of with a majority government. Um, but that will not happen. And, it, and it's hard to sort of explain why, except that we have this history and these norms and a real reluctance on the part of both the Canadian public, but also politicians themselves to bring this issue into the political realm. Um, so what's really interesting is, so in 1988, um, existing abortion laws are struck down as unconstitutional by the Morgenthaler decision, like you said, and then the so the Supreme Court is like, these laws are unconstitutional, but this is a job for the political realm, right? We don't draft laws, which actually makes it very different than the Roe v. Wade decision. So then we have the Mulroney government that comes in and tries to pass a new abortion law, which is sort of a compromise. Um, and if you know anything about Canadian politics, you know that the Senate is generally like a very ineffective institution, but the Senate actually blocks that legislation. And since then, no sitting government has introduced any abortion-related le legislation. And this really speaks to this idea, and I mean, we see it with the Conservative Party, um, that politicians do not see this as a winning issue, and they actually don't want to take it up in, in the public. So that's the one hand is I really, there's no, I mean, we saw it with Aaron O'Toole, the former leader of the Conservative Party. Um, he sort of is like ambiguous about his stance on abortion during the leadership debates. And then he comes in and one of the first announcements he makes as conservative leader is like, I'm pro-choice, right? So you even have to be kind of pro-choice um, to be a conservative leader, right? It, opposing abortion is just not a vote getting strategy in Canada. So that's kind of one side of it. But you speak about access, which I also think is a really important part of it. And you're right, right? Abortion access is inequitable throughout the country. So we can talk about kind of an abortion law and rights, but I also think we need to talk about access, right? Access to abortion care tends to be concentrated in urban centers. There's discrepancies throughout the, the country um, with the maritime provinces sort of lagging behind, although that's changed a little bit in the last few years. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think we should be talking about you know, in the wake of Roe v. Wade, maybe less kind of the legal side and a fear that it's going to be criminalized, which it won't be, and more about, you know, what we can do to kind of expand access. Would it be beneficial at all to have politicians, in fact, enact some sort of law uh, codifying what exactly this is all about? Because it feels like we, we simply push it aside because no one really wants to get involved. A lot of the abortion provision community might say, no, like the thing about Canada is like, it's not politicians that should be legislating abortion care. This is a medical procedure, right? It's a medical procedure that a third of women undergo in their lifetime. Um, and there's no need for politicians to be involved in that decision. And so the way the, the sort of status quo in Canada where it's really the medical community um, and, and women making sort of decisions around abortion care is, is a much better sort of system. Uh, just to briefly return to the U.S., um, this will obviously have huge political implications. Well, we have the midterms coming up. We've seen the political divisions today already around this issue. It, it, do you expect it to be a very, regardless of what decision we see from the Supreme Court, and we knew it was coming, uh, 
uh, this year before the midterms. I imagine this is just a taste of what we're about to see politically in the U.S. I mean, I think so. So one one interesting thing, if you think about the impacts of these types of decisions, is before 1973, the year of the Roe v. Wade decision, there was actually no standalone anti-abortion movement or pro-life movement in the U.S., right? The the liberalization of the abortion law created that social movement, right? That social and political movement that then becomes so influential in the Republican Party. So, I mean, in some ways, that decision kind of remakes the political context in the U.S. And so, you know, maybe we can imagine this decision doing something similar. Like, obviously, these movements already exist, um, but kind of remaking the, the field of, of, uh, of, of social movements. On the, on the Democratic side, what we would expect at the bottom, I mean, we've already seen it today that, uh, that there has been a huge mobilization around this issue on, on, the, on the pro-choice side. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is Joe Biden has been, uh, I mean, he's a Catholic, an outspoken Catholic. He's not sort of the defender of a woman's right to choose that I think many American women would probably wish that he was. And I, I just briefly heard some of his comments and he was talking really about the importance of this decision in that it will affect many other issues and Supreme Court decisions. Um, so, you know, that's going to be interesting too, um, how much the Democratic Party sort of seizes this issue and, and makes it their own. Um, it, like for very understandable reasons, given what's been happening in American politics over the last decade in terms of racial politics, um, in terms of systemic racism. Uh, you know, I think that abortion politics haven't been at the forefront like they were maybe at the beginning of the 2000s. And so whether that changes, whether, you know, on the kind of progressive side, on the democratic side, new coalitions of politics emerge between kind of issues of reproductive justice and communities of color. I think that these are going to be kind of interesting developments um, in the wake of, of this decision. Kelly Gordon, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks so much for having me. 